I'm the Gypsy, and you're not. And this is the Rubber Biscuit Road Show, presented by Artist Alley Studio, featuring the artisan, handcrafted, and branded creations of the Gypsy and Mad Hatter at www.artistalleystudio.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome to episode 6 of the Rubber Biscuit Roadshow. I am your host, the Gypsy. Last week's episode found us in March 1979 when I received a phone call informing me of my biological father's death. In this week's episode, you will join me as I head to the funeral of that man, who I had never met, and I learn more and more about my mother's background and the things that affected her mental illness her entire life. In this week's episode, we find out that what we've got here is failure to communicate. March 25th, 1956 was a red letter day in the history of the world to hear my mother tell it. I knew the story as well as I knew my own name, and at least once a year as I grew up, I would wish that amnesia would overtake my mind. I truly believe that my mother would mark off the days on the calendar year after year, waiting for March 25th to arrive, so that she could once again relate her favorite story to me. March 25th was the day of my conception. And it was also the day, 23 years later, that the man who had given me life had left this world and passed into the next. Now, five days after his solving the great mystery, I was saying to the funeral of a man who was as much a stranger to me as he was a familiar part of my life. Mother Nature had given me a day to reflect my mood. After a few weeks of unseasonably mild temperatures, this early spring day had taken a leap backwards to revisit the coldest and most miserable day of midwinter. I headed my 1970 BSA Thunderbolt motorcycle along Lower Lake Road and out of St. Joseph, Missouri into the frigid air southwest along US 59 Highway towards Atchison, Kansas. At Atchison I crossed the high, narrow, steel-girded Missouri River Bridge. The motorcycle's tires hummed as they skimmed over the bridge's steel deck. Far below, the waterway of the muddy Missouri carried ice flow commuters of varying sizes south to their eventual dissipation in warmer waters. Passing under the Welcome to Kansas sign, I noticed the rust that was pushing past the peeling green painted girders of the bridge and onto the attached sign that announced Home of Miss America, 1974. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, Miss America's a virgin, and if she doesn't get laid soon, she's gonna rust. I chanted to myself as I left the bridge and headed through the old railroad town. On the far side of Atchison, US 59 South joined up with K4 Highway and continued west towards Topeka. As I maneuvered the hills and curves of Nightmare Alley, the nickname given by locals to the stretch of K-4 from Atchison to Topeka, the air fought to push its icy fingers through my layers of clothing and leather. As the road disappeared behind me, my mind drifted into that period where my mother would gleefully tell me of my conception. Your dad was in the Merchant Marines at the time, 
she would begin, and would be gone for three months at a time. This particular time, he was only home for one day, and, well, she would grin and continue. While Jack Benny mugged for the camera, you were conceived. My mom would sigh, get a faraway look in her eyes, and state, To this day, I find the glow of a TV screen in a darkened room the most romantic of lighting. Anyway, she would come back to the present. I can tell you the exact day you were conceived, because your dad was gone for three months after that. I didn't have sex with anyone else, so voila! My mother would clap her hands together and then open them up in a sweeping and generous gesture. March 25th, the day of your conception. She would look at me for my reaction. That's pretty cool, I would always say. Yes, it is. Of course you would have been born on Christmas if you hadn't been born exactly two months to the day early. My mother would conclude without waiting for a reaction from me before she would start a new discourse on a completely different subject. I geared down as I left the asphalt of the highway and felt the bike's tires bite into the gravel driveway that skirted the highway. I listened to the crunching sound of the stones as I pulled the BSA up to the pump at the old Sinclair station in Valley Falls. Kicking down the kickstand, I stiffly extracted myself from my bike and released the chrome gas cap. I grabbed the bike's handlebars and gave it a shake as I strained to look into the oily depths of the tank. The sloshing of the gas greeted my ears as if saying, I'm hungry, slosh slosh, feed me. To remind me of what she ate, the bike released a whiff of gasoline fumes from the tank opening. Dislodging the pump handle, I slipped the nozzle into the cap's opening and briefly wondered how Freud would analyze a man's love for his machine and the symbolisms associated with the refueling process. Insert phallic symbol A into opening B on machine. C, that is referred to as she. The pump noisily and slowly dispensed its fuming liquid as I silently gave thanks to the long-dead dinosaur that had given its life to fuel my bike. Finishing the process, I gave a salute to the profile on the pump of the green monster that now resided in my tank and headed for the station to pay my bill. How much? The greasy station attendant demanded. Tossing two crumbled dollar bills on the counter, I said a buck and a quarter. The station attendant barely took his eyes off the Playboy magazine he was scrutinizing to take my money and throw back three quarters. Wonder if I would have said a dime if he would have even noticed. Walking back into the cold, I pushed my bike away from the pumps and set it to rest by a small hill, at the top of which sat the town's best and only cafe. Entering the building, my nose was assailed with the smells of stale tobacco smoke, burnt coffee, old grease, and assorted lost food forever hidden between the stove and the wall. The sound of bacon in its death throes issued forth from the flat brown grill. Coffee, please, I said as the waitress approached. She moved the crumbs round on the counter in front of me with a wet bar towel that smelled of too much bleach and laid the menu in the damp remains. Without a word, she produced a cup out of nowhere and poured the black tar from the stained pot into it. I like strong coffee as much as the next guy, but this had a life of its own. I beat it back into the cup with my spoon and added some sugar and cream to tame it. The waitress stood chewing her cud as I pursued the faded and stained menu. Got a wine list? I inquired. A what? She asked. Two eggs, over easy, sausage, biscuits, and gravy, and keep your fingers out of the bowl, I answered. Without a word, she snatched the menu and walked away, scribbling the order on her pad. Years of eating and dives like this had taught me that this was the safest breakfast to order. It was damn near impossible to screw it up. 
The gravy was pre-packaged and mixed with water, just heat and serve. The biscuits were pre-baked and loaded with so many preservatives that not even the roaches would touch them, but they were safe for human consumption. The sausage would be overcooked, and so would the eggs, so no worry there. The safe breakfast. Now you know where McDonald's got the idea for their breakfast menu. As I sipped the tarry coffee, I could feel the eyes of every farmer in the place on me. This was a farming community, and the ten or so customers were definitely fresh from the farm. The circus was in town, and I was the center ring attraction. Chances were that if I made it out of this cafe without incident, that I would still be the talk of the town for weeks. The waitress sat the greasy plate down in front of me, and I began to choke down the slimy mess. While I ate, I could hear the whispers coming from the other tables, and I knew what they were saying. It was always the same old shit from goat fuckers. It usually was about the length of my hair, my tattoos, or my club colors, which I wore everywhere, especially when I was on my bike, as I was today. My colors were a white skull-shaped patch which portrayed the visage of a grim reaper standing in front of a flaming coffin. There were top and bottom rockers that framed the center patch and stated in large red block letters, Missouri Reapers MC. Below this assemblage was another patch that proclaimed original member. I was one of the five Missouri originals in a club that now numbered almost 100 riders between the Kansas and Missouri chapters. The patches were sewed to the back of my cut. An old blue jean jacket with the arms had been cut out of it. The cut held patches and pins that were the road map of my life and travels. On the front were two special patches sewed over the pockets. Over the right pocket was a red-lettered patch that told you that I was the Gypsy. And over the left pocket, a slightly smaller patch announced my position with the club. In essence, business manager. Grabbing the last piece of sausage from the plate, I popped it in my mouth as I stood to leave. What do you suppose that is on his back? I heard one of the goat fuckers drawl as I reached in my pocket for cash to pay my bill. Don't know. Could be a monkey, another offered. Christ, I don't need this. Not today of all days. More like a flaming faggot, someone else said, and the group broke out in laughter. Deja vu. Didn't I see this in a movie? I decided to put a stop to this as quickly as possible. Picking up my half-full cup of coffee, I headed for the large round table where the majority of the goat fuckers sat and where most of the laughter came from. I stood in front of the table, laughing with them as if I was one of their group and in on the joke instead of being the joke. They continued to laugh, eyeing me, when suddenly the realization came into their small brains that the brunt of their joke was standing in front of them and laughing with them. As the laughter started to subside, my demeanor changed. I slammed the cup down hard on the table, spilling its contents. Holding the cup hard against the table, I leaned forward and through clenched teeth hissed, Listen to me, assholes. I am on my way to bury my father. I am short on time, but I am sure I can find enough time to bury a couple of you motherfuckers today if you don't shut your mouth and leave me the fuck alone. I caught a movement out of the corner of my eye, and without taking my eyes off the leader of the group, I said, Don't even think it, old man. I'm younger, faster, stronger, and a lot more pissed off than you. I straightened up and fixed the lead goat fucker with a look and asked, Do we have any further problems? He grinned a toothless grin. Nah, we were just funnin'. Without another word, I carried the cup back to the counter, dropped four bucks into the remains of its contents, and set it down on the counter. The waitress just stared at a spot on the wall on the other side of the room and said nothing. Nice talking to you, I said as I grabbed the door handle to leave. Sorry about your paw. The lead goat fucker called out as I exited the cafe and made my way back down the hill to my bike. The wind was a cold knife slicing into my face as the miles disappeared behind me and my destination loomed closer. I had said it. 
I had even given voice to the thing I had not wanted to speak. I am going to bury my father. I had suppressed thoughts of my father and the duty I had to perform this day as long as I could. Now those things of him that I knew piled in upon me and flooded my thoughts. Leroy Everett George was born in 1925 into a farm family in the northeast Kansas village of Nortonville, Kansas. Ironically, the same community that my great-grandfather and his brother on my mother's side had once called home. He met my mother, Shirley Elizabeth Hummel, a Topeka girl, when Leroy was a logger in the northwest U.S. and Shirley was a waitress in a logging camp cafe. Shirley, at the age of 18, was recently divorced from U.S. Army Sergeant Bill Braswell and had recently been released from Topeka State Hospital. She had suffered a nervous breakdown when her six months marriage had fell apart and her family had her committed for treatment. Upon release, she headed to Florida for a short stay and then to the Northwest States to get away from everyone and everything she knew. Shirley had decided to explore her gypsy heritage and travel around for a while. Leroy had entered the cafe just as the sun was setting behind the tall pines. The chill wind followed him into the warm interior of the cafe. He had been topping trees since sunrise and he was stiff, cold, and bone-weary tired. He found a seat on the slick green vinyl top of one of the chrome bar stools that lined the counter. Turning up the white glazed clay mug that rested on the counter in front of him, he turned on the stool looking for the waitress. This was Shirley's first day of work as a waitress in this logging camp cafe where everyone seemed to know everyone else. She was scared because she was by herself in a strange new place, but she needed to earn some money before she moved on. She moved in behind the counter and standing in front of Leroy asked, What will it be? Looking from the upturned cup to the pot in her hand, he raised an eyebrow and grinned at her. Flustered, she poured his coffee, then asked him as she reached for the creamer, How do you like your coffee? Grinning ear to ear, Leroy replied, The same way I like my women. Before Leroy could continue, Shirley poured cream and sugar into his cup and shot back, White and sweet? Leroy spent the evening drinking coffee and visiting with the young, attractive waitress. When she would leave the counter to take a customer's orders, his eyes would follow her around the cafe. She reminded him of someone familiar, but he could not recall who it was. The cafe closed at 10 p.m., and together they silently climbed the outside stairs to Shirley's loft apartment above the cafe. Her face was illuminated by the bare bulb outside the door, and as Leroy stared at her profile, he suddenly knew who she reminded him of. Taking her by the shoulders as she inserted a key in the lock, he turned her around. Looking into her large brown eyes, he knew he was right. Except for the fact that she did not have violet eyes, this waitress looked like the movie actress Elizabeth Taylor. He took her in his arms and pressed his lips to the lips of the girl with movie star looks. From that moment on, Leroy and Shirley spent as much time as they could together. When he wasn't chopping timber and she wasn't waiting tables, they shared Shirley's bed. Shirley had never been to Leroy's place and she did not want to go. The idea of the two of them in the heat of passion surrounded by the fifty or so men Leroy shared a bunkhouse with made her laugh. She had fallen hopelessly head over heels in love with him, but she did not know for certain how he felt. He was not very vocal about his emotions, so Shirley had not told him how she felt. She was terrified of scaring him off, but she had to know. One night, while lying wrapped in his arms after a more than vigorous lovemaking session, she broached the subject. Lee, she breathed across his chest, I love you. Shirley held her breath, her heart beating hard within her breast. Me too, came the reply. Okay, Shirley thought, not quite what I was expecting, but I'll take it. 
She nestled deeper into his strong, protecting arms and drifted into a contented sleep. Fall had approached quickly and quietly, and the lumber camp was becoming more deserted daily. Shirley had asked Leroy what was going on, and he had jokingly remarked, The geese are flying south for the winter. When she pressed him about it, he would avoid the subject and start conversations about anything except the desertion of the camp. Shirley knew that if this kept on, before long there would be no loggers left. Just a small local population, and she could not make enough tips with the loggers gone to sustain her through the winter. If Leroy wasn't going to give her a straight answer, then she would ask the cafe owner what was going on. Big Frank had lived here all his life, and there was nothing that escaped his attention. Frank, where's everyone going? Shirley asked. It's the annual migration, he began. Every year at this time, the logging camps all but closed down, and the loggers head for warmer climes. He told her in his one cigarette too many raspy voice, I was going to tell you here in a day or so that I wouldn't need you until next spring. Shirley's mind reeled. Why hadn't Lee told me this? Big Frank eyed his young waitress and could see the concern on her face. Don't worry about it, he rasped. Go home to your family for the winter and let Lee have his few months playing husband to his wife. Next spring y'all can pick up where he left off and play house some more. The shock of what Big Frank had just said hit Shirley like a tongue of bricks. Frank saw it in her now tearing eyes. Oh my God, you didn't know, Frank said. Leroy was in heaven. Shirley had fixed his favorite meal, pork chops, corn on the cob, potatoes with gravy, and a big piece of hot apple pie with a piece of cheese melted right on top. After dinner, she had almost ripped his clothes from his body with her eagerness to start pleasing him, and please him she did. Shirley had become his willing slave, doing anything and everything he wanted to please him. Just when he thought he had done all he could, she would go to work on him until he exploded in sheer ecstasy. Leroy now lay back against the headboard, satisfied and exhausted. Sleep was threatening to overtake him as Shirley sat down on the edge of the bed, an open schlitz in her hand. She handed the bottle to Leroy and ran her other hand up the middle of his chest then drew her finger down towards his stomach. Tracing the contours of his well-defined abs with her index finger, she smiled and seductively looked into his eyes. He was taking a long draw from his bear when Shirley cooled. Lee, I was just wondering, who do you think is better in bed, me or your wife? Spewing bear across the bed and giving Shirley's nude body a baptism of fermented hops and barley, Lee started choking. What's the matter, you son of a bitch? She said, jumping up off the bed. Hasn't any of your other girlfriends ever asked you that? Grabbing a pillow off of the bed, she lunged for Leroy's head, trying to press the pillow over his still gagging face. He pushed and heaved her off of him, where she landed with a thud on the floor. Are you crazy? Leroy asked with a gasp. I'll kill you, you motherfucker, I'll kill you! She sobbed from where she had landed on the floor. He knelt down beside her and tried to brush a hair from Shirley's face. She resisted his efforts, pulling away and scrambling up and onto her bed where she pulled the sheets around her naked body. Sitting on the edge of the bed, Leroy said, I reckon I have some explaining to do. I guess we'd better talk. However, for the first twenty minutes or so, the only talking that was done was by Leroy, with Shirley resisting all until he said, So I guess what I'm trying to say is that I love you. Looking up at him, Shirley said, Now we can talk. They talked through the night. Leroy told Shirley how even though he loved her, he loved his wife Wilma also. He explained that it was hard for him because he could not decide between the two of them, and he had not known how to tell Shirley about Wilma. 
Is this something you do all the time? Shirley had wanted to know. Leroy assured her it was not. They continued to talk until the rising sun was just creeping over the treetops and forcing its way through the blinds and into the room. They finally decided in the early hours of that morning that they would remain lovers. Shirley told Leroy that she understood his dilemma and if the only way she could have him was to be his lover, then she would be happy to have that. They made plans for Shirley to follow him down to Houston where his home and family were when he left in three weeks. They declared their love for each other and he reassured her that all would be well before snuggling into each other and falling asleep. Well, that concludes this week's episode of the Rubber Biscuit Road Show and our presentation of Never Say Never, An Epic Journey, Volume 1. I hope you'll join us here next week when we find out that this is the stuff that dreams are made of. Until then, this is your friendly neighborhood gypsy saying, may God bless and keep you and yours. Later, Gators. Bye-bye now. Visit the Rubber Biscuit Roadshow online at www.rubberbiscuit.com. That's www.r-u-b-b-e-r-b-i-s-k-i-t.com. The Rubber Biscuit Roadshow is produced by Tatman Productions, LLC. All parts of this program are copyrighted, all rights reserved. No parts may be published, reproduced, or used without the written express permission of Tatman Productions, LLC.